three years after a white woman called the police on him in Central Park, falsely claiming he attacked her. Bird enthusiast Christian Cooper is once again making headlines, this time on his own terms. Tonight, how that viral encounter led to his new show on National Geographic, where he's sharing some of the unexpected lessons from a life spent looking up as Metro Focus starts right now. This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by Sue and Edgar Wackenheim III, Philomen M. D'Agostino Foundation, the Peter G. Peterson and Joan Gans Cooney Fund, Bernard and Denise Schwartz, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by Jody and John Arnhold. Dr. Robert C. and Tina Sohn Foundation, the Ambrose Monell Foundation, Estate of Roland Carlin. Good evening and welcome to Metro Focus. I'm Jenna Flanagan. Lifelong bird enthusiast Christian Cooper was forced into the national spotlight when a white woman called the police on him in Central Park, falsely claiming that he attacked her. Though it garnered plenty of media attention, Christian has put that incident behind him to focus on his true passion and the entire reason he was even in Central Park in the first place that day, birding. His love for birds has taken him around the world and is now the subject of his new book, Better Living Through Birding, Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World, and the focus of a new TV series he's hosting for National Geographic titled Extraordinary Birder with Christian Cooper. And joining me now is author, television personality, and vice president of New York City Audubon, a grassroots community that works for the protection of wild birds in the five boroughs, Christian Cooper. Christian, welcome to Metro Focus. Thanks, Jenna. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. So, so many questions about birding in New York, or excuse me, yeah, birding. Bird. Okay, you know what? That is an excellent place to start because in all of the reading that I did, it was made clear to me that there is a difference between birding and bird watching. Oh, and yes so, and yes yeah, and can no. you explain what that is? Sure. I mean, it's sort of like I grew up saying bird watcher and bird watching, but really when you're out there, you're relying on your ears as much as your eyes, particularly particularly if you're a birder like me. I'm I'm what they call an ear birder, and my ears are bringing me tremendous amounts of information that I use almost more than my eyesight. Plus, when you think about it, there are plenty of well, maybe not plenty, but there are definitely people who engage with birds who are blind and they solely. Um, use their ears. That came up in my show, Extraordinary Birder. We were down in Puerto Rico, and one of the birders there who analyzes the sounds of the forest to determine what birds have come back in this forest they've restored, and he's blind. And so he relies entirely on sound. And he, as an ear birder, he puts me to shame. How did this grow to become your passion? Because when and okay, we are not of the current generation of kids, but when I think of them, I tend to think of, you know, digital everything and locked into a phone, but how did you become uh, passionate about the natural world as a young person? Okay, well, first of all, I'm 60 years old, so <laughs> not that generation at all. Um, 
but how did I get locked in? Um, when I was growing up, my dad was a science teacher. So nature was always big in our household. And with me, for whatever reason, it took the particular form of birds. And when you think about birds, they're completely engaging and they communicate the same way that we do. Um, we use sight and sound as our primary senses, unlike our pets. You know, cats and dogs use their nose a lot. We don't. We use it, but it's not our primary sense. Birds communicate the same way we do, primarily through sight and sound. So we can appreciate their incredible colors and patterns and the incredible sounds they make, the songs of the songbirds. All of that is something that we can really get into. So uh, I think that's why I, I got roped into birding. It was just a, a wonderful way to get outside of myself and get outside. And so much of birding, again, you sort of talked about how, um, because it's not just a watching, you're listening, you're looking for uh, or picking up on other clues, but how much of it involves just waiting around? Or is there just, you know, a complete orchestra of birds around us that perhaps because we've gotten accustomed to them being there, we don't pay as much attention? Patience is definitely a virtue when you're birding. Um, there will be times when there's not much going on, or it seems like there's not much going on, and you've got to reset yourself and slow yourself down and take in the world a little bit more and a little bit more slowly. There are times when you're looking for a particular bird who is, say, a bird that skulks through the underbrush and is very hard to see. Um, that happens particularly now with a bird called the morning warbler. It's a migrant and it's passing through New York City, the tail end of its migration right now through New York City, but it skulks through bushes and it is so hard to see. Uh, so um, one was reported in Tompkins Square Park um, a couple of like two weeks ago, and there's hardly any underbrush there, but I had to stare at these little shrubs for an hour before I finally saw them. <laughs> So patience is a virtue. But um, yeah, no, you you tune into things and, and you start to realize, oh, yeah, there is a lot going on here that I never knew. People walk through the city all the time and never realize just how much bird life is is going on around them. And that's actually one of the uh, episodes of your show that's focused solely on the birds of New York City. Yeah. And so, uh, first of all, how many varieties, I guess, of wild birds are either in or coming through New York City? Because... Again, we tend to just think of the one bird for New York. <laughs> well, I think in Central Park, I, I believe it's roughly about 200 different species have been recorded in Central Park. Now, Central Park is pretty special because it's what we call a migrant trap. So when birds are migrating in the spring or the fall, they pass over New York City, they see Central Park, this emerald swath of green in the sea of concrete, and they just funnel in because it's a place for them to rest and refuel. And the only place really for them to rest and refuel, maybe a few other little places. But so it concentrates the birds and it makes it one of the prime birding spots in uh, in all of the world, really. So um, Central Park has a whole bunch of birds. New York City has birds, even in places outside of Central Park. My neighborhood has um, red-tailed hawks 
that nest here and American kestrels, which is our smallest falcon that nest in the neighborhood. And I swear to God, the kestrel's favorite sport is to harass the much, much larger uh, red-tailed hawks on a daily basis. They just love to dive bomb the red tails and like, hey, get out of my neighborhood, get out of my neighborhood, get out of my neighborhood, over and over again. So it's really amazing. And that's going on over people's heads in the middle of the East Village and most people don't realize it. So they sound like true New Yorkers. <laughs> oh, my God. The Red Tails are serious New Yorkers because they've grown up surrounded by people their whole lives. You go where you are up in the Hudson Valley mm -hmm. and you can't get within 200 yards yards of a Red Tail before it spooks and flies off. Here in the city, you can be five feet away and the Red Tail is sitting there like, yeah, so... <laughs> Total New York attitude because they're used to people. So it's, it's Aha. Well, so speaking of New York attitude, because there is, of course, the one species of bird pigeon that we all associate with New York City. And, you know, I'll say that I've heard some derogatory terms for this particular type of bird. But one of the things that I learned from at least clips from your show is that Pigeons are smarter than we give them credit for being. And I'll just say that when I heard that, I thought, well, you know, I'm pretty sure I've seen pigeons using the subway. <laughs> ah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. I used to be one of those people who had nothing but derogatory things to say about pigeons. And then I started going into the New York City public schools. This is like years ago, many, many years ago. And I still do it as much as possible to, to, to get the kids outdoors and looking at birds. And a lot of times in their neighborhoods, sometimes the only bird around is the pigeon. And when you really start to tune into them and pay attention to them and learn a little bit about their biology, they're fascinating. For one thing, they're not truly wild. They are feral. They were brought, they were domesticated birds and they got loose and they started interbreeding. And now because people had bred them first, people bred them into all these fancy forms the way we do with dogs. So we bred in all these colors. We made some of them white. We made some, some of them nearly all black, some of them red and all these colors. And then they started interbreeding. And now we get all these other patterns and colors but we still get some of those all whites and some of those all blacks and they haven't averaged back to that original form for some reason and nobody knows why. So it's fascinating to look at them, watch their mating behavior when the males puff up their necks and hold, stick out their chests and fan their tails and droop them. And they're trying to say, hey, baby, come on over. You know, we got something going on here. And it's 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 fun to watch. And it feels very, very, very New York. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In the words of Spike Lee, they're saying, please, baby, please, baby, please, baby, 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 baby please. <laughs> okay. So with, with actually um, that and bringing instinct into the conversation, I do want to go back to when you mentioned um, Central Park being a migratory stop, um, I guess a, like a O'Hare airport or something where everybody seems to have a layover. But more importantly, um, I've also heard over the years that there's a problem with birds migrating through New York, and that is that we have so many tall buildings with glass windows, which can be confusing, disorienting, and unfortunately, birds can slam into. Um, how, I guess, does that get addressed at all? Is that just an ongoing problem? 
it is an ongoing problem, but boy, has it been addressed. And here I'm going to thump my chest a little bit with pride for New York City Audubon, of which I am a, a board member, because New York City Audubon played an instrumental part in getting legislation through the city council that requires in new construction of buildings that they use what's called bird safe glass. And what that is, is glass that to you or I looks normal, at least at a casual inspection, but the birds see it. Instead of seeing a reflection that they think is more sky or seeing through it and thinking they can keep going, they see a solid barrier where we just see glass. And that allows them to avoid the collisions, brings the collisions way down. Perfect example of that, and one of the best uh, uh, citizens of the city, in my opinion, is um, the Jacob Javits Center which used to be one of the biggest bird killers because it had all that glass and sat in the middle of the Hudson or right mm -hmm. on the They retrofitted with bird safe glass and now their collisions are way down to almost nil. Plus they have a green roof on top of the Jacobs Javits Center. And we visited that green roof in the New York City episode and a gull decided that I was helping to, because they have gulls nesting on the green roof. And a gull that I was helping to measure and check its health decided it didn't like me holding it. And it got hold of my face with its beak. And I can tell you how much that hurt. <laughs> but, oh, my God. Uh, in the name of science, sacrifices must be made. So, it, it, but it's, yeah, it's it's pretty amazing that, that we got that legislation passed and that helped a lot. Um, we still have more work to do. Um, we have uh, an effort called Lights Out New York to reduce the light pollution that disorients the birds, to turn off lights that aren't necessary during migration. Um, so there's more work to be doing, uh, but New York City Audubon is on top of it, and we're really proud of that. Oh, that's fascinating to know. But speaking of the lengths that you'll go through for uh, science and for birds, there's also an episode that takes you to the top of the George Washington Bridge, which oh, sounds... That's, that, that's the same New York City episode. That was one of the coolest things ever. Um, so you, um, they closed off a lane of the George Washington Bridge during rush hour so that we could have access. I know. So that we wow. could have <laughs> yeah, I, I, Every motorist right now is going, what? Um, so that we could have access to an elevator to take us up to the top of one of the towers. And when you step off, first of all, there's this vertiginous drop. You look down and there's the Hudson, how many hundreds of feet below you that you're seeing through this, you know, flimsy grate that you're standing on. And then you've got the superstructure of the bridge zooming around you. Girder is like some Fritz Lang movie of, of industrial wasteland. And then you hear this. Because... The peregrine falcons nest on that bridge. That's why we've gone up there to check on the peregrine falcon nest and check on the health of the young. And the mother is not having it. And so she is zooming through those girders at us, screaming her head off. And those girders are amplifying the sound. And you're looking out on, looking down at the Hudson, looking out on the city, how many feet high this bird zooming around and it was it was incredible it was an amazing experience i hope oh we, my. i hope it gets i hope it, that gets communicated in the show because it was it was pretty awesome to be up there i mean it sounds terrifying even just to hear i get the heebie-jeebies taking that bridge period but 
Um, there was a purpose, though. I mean, you guys were like me taking measurements and I think banding the birds as well. Exactly. Exactly. New York City actually has the highest concentration of peregrine falcons of any city in the world, it is believed. Why? Because our skyscrapers simulate the cliff faces that they normally nest on in the wild. So our, our bridges and skyscrapers offer the perf perfect nesting sites and our pigeons offer the perfect food supply. So uh, the peregrine falcons are thriving here in New York City, but we want to keep tabs of them because there was a, a point when the peregrine falcon in the east coast of the United States was extinct. It, there were no breeding birds left in the east coast of the, of the United States because of DDT and its effect on the bird's biology. That's all changed. Um, serious scientific efforts by amazing people brought the bird back and now they're thriving in New York City, but we want to make sure that they continue to thrive. So there are biologists from the Department of Environmental Conservation of New York State who go up there and check on the young and measure them, check on their health, um, tag them. And that's what I got to tag along, tag along for and <laughs> help with. Yeah. So okay. that was amazing. One more uh, question about the New York City birds, because every so often we get like one or two or maybe one bird that becomes a celebrity in and of itself in the city. I mean, there was the infamous Central Park duck. There have been, I believe, hawks that have nested that we've all followed. And is is it important for New Yorkers to uh, understand or appreciate um, the wide variety, or is it okay that, you know, sometimes we just get fixated on this one animal because, wow. I think it's fine to get fixated on the one animal because it's a gateway to the other animals, to the other birds. You know, you through that bird, you might start to look around and think, oh, I didn't realize this was, this was possible here in New York City. I, I look a little bit askance personally at the ones that aren't wild that become celebrity birds. You know, like um, right now it's Flacco, uh, the Eurasian eagle owl that has escaped from the Central Park Zoo. Mm -hmm. Certainly cool to look at and he's huge, but you know, I like my birds as wild birds, the native birds that we have here. But still, you know, Flacco still gets people engaged, gets them interested in birds and wondering. And then, you know, when they see Flacco, we can say, oh, well, have you seen the great horned owls that look an awful lot, awful lot like Flacco, but they're native and they're hanging out here too. So um, it's a great way to get people involved. Well, uh, speaking of native birds, which I guess would be an odd way to segue considering our human issues with people that come from other places, but uh, all birds are native to somewhere and you've actually traveled the globe to see birds in their native habitats. So are there um, any specific parts of the globe that you've been to that have been just really stood out to you in your memory of being able to go birding there? Absolutely. Um, a fellow board member of mine in New York City Audubon um, has gone to Ecuador quite a few times. Um, and he sent me an email saying, oh, yeah, my friend down there in Ecuador knows where there's an active harpies, harpy eagle's nest that's, that's accessible. Now, the harpy eagle is the largest eagle in the world. People look at it and they, they, they think it's a person dressed up in a suit because it's that big and that powerful and crazy looking. And it's got this crest of feathers on the head. It's an incredible bird. And it's always occupied this larger than life position in my imagination. If you know where there's an active nest, you're guaranteed to get the bird. So 
This was the middle of the pandemic, though. We weren't supposed to be going anywhere. <laughs> I dropped everything, booked a flight to Ecuador, went down with them. We drove out there. A, a pair of expensive hiking boots got completely ruined because we sank down into the muck to our ankles, if not further. The bugs were everywhere. Didn't care because I got me a harpy eagle and it was magnificent. This female was huge. And I have a little video of her where you see this huge bird with this crest of feathers looking at you. And then she just kind of does this. And you see this massive wing unfold and she pulls it back in. And it was just, it was, it was awesome. So yeah. Uh, and plus you go to Ecuador, you get the most amazing hummingbirds, like insane hummingbirds. That's right. Beautiful things. And hummingbirds are the glory of the Americans because they don't exist in the old world. You go to Europe, Asia, Africa, no, no hummingbirds. They're strictly in the Americas, North America, Central America, South America, the Caribbean. That's where hummingbirds are. So they're really just, their biology is incredible. The things they do are amazing. They're incredibly feisty. They'll buzz up to you and check you out if you come into their territory. So Ecuador has an incredible variety of them and it's just so much fun to be there and look at them. So Ecuador is, is high on my list. Is there any indication how um, climate change is affecting the birds? I mean, I've been staying inside the past few days just to avoid um, the air quality, which is so bad, but for the birds, does that matter? Is it something that's affecting their world as well? Well, um, I can't answer definitively because I don't know, but mm -hmm. we all know the story of the canary in a coal mine. And there's a reason why that expression persists. It's because they used to literally take canaries down into the coal mine because they would keel over before the people would. And that would be the indication that the air had gone bad. So it worries me greatly. The specific situation right now worries me greatly with the, with all the smoke. It worries me that so much of Canada is on fire because that's the habitat where a lot of our migrants um, raise their young um, in the summertime. So how is this going to impact already fragile populations? But in the bigger picture, global warming is kicking the planet's ass and birds are a good indicator of how badly things are going. In my lifetime, since I started birding as a kid in the 70s, we have lost about one third of all the entire population of living birds in North America. One third of them are just gone. Um, and the, global warming is one of the contributing factors to that. Um, you go to Hawaii, we did an episode of Extraordinary Birder in Hawaii, and I knew things were bad in Hawaii. I didn't know how bad. Three out of four of their native birds are already extinct, gone. And it's getting worse because because the problem there, the big biggest problem, there are many, but the biggest problem is mosquito-borne illnesses that the native Hawaiian birds have no resistance to. So they exist, the, the, the native birds still persist at higher altitudes where it's cool and the mosquitoes haven't gotten up there. But global warming keeps raising the temperature and the mosquitoes keep getting higher and higher. And there's only so much real estate left in Hawaii. There's only so much further up you can go. So they are fighting against the clock to save those birds. And the people who are doing that fight, they are the extraordinary birders. They are doing heroic work and, and anything we can do to support them, we should. So, you know, climate change, its effect on our planet, birds are a tremendous indicator of how extreme that is. 
we birders have seen it in our own lifetimes. We've seen birds that we used to only see in the South that now breed regularly in our area and as far North as Maine, because the climate has changed that much in our lifetime. So yes, climate change is real um, and we need to do everything we can to ameliorate the effects. We can't, at this point, we can't stop it. We can slow it down. And maybe if we're smart, we can come up with something that maybe will reverse it. I don't know, but we've got to do everything we can. Otherwise we're gonna live with this all the time, the the, the smoke and the, the clouds. And... Mm, definitely something to keep in mind. Um, but I, I just also want to bring up, because I mentioned in the intro that uh, you are vice president of New York City Audubon, and I understand that the group is in the process of changing its name. Can you tell me a little bit more about the organization and why the rebrand? Sure. For a long time, the name Audubon just was synonymous with birds. That's all it meant. Nothing more or less than birds and protecting the habitat for birds. The issue is that in more recent years, it has become more widely known what John James Audubon, who the society is named after, um, did in his life. Um, namely, he owned slaves, he sold slaves to pay for his work. He desecrated the graves of indigenous people without any regard really for, for what that meant. Um, so because of that, and because birding has been an overwhelmingly white activity. Um, and we're trying to reach out to people of color, to people of all kinds, because, you know, the United States and especially New York City is no longer a majority white place. Um, we've got to get everybody involved in birding and emotionally connected to the birds if we want to save the birds. And as that legacy of John James Audubon, that dark past of John James Audubon becomes more widely known, it becomes an impediment to us drawing in the people we have to draw in if we're going to save the birds. So that's why we decided ultimately to change the name. And, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to feel about it on both sides. Um, uh -huh. What I like to come down on is, look, pretty much everybody agrees that what John James Audubon did with slaves and with indigenous graves is awful, reprehensible. And no matter how they fall on the name and Everybody, no matter how they fall on the name, is devoted to the protection of birds and their habitat. Those are two huge points of agreement. So no matter which side you fall on that name debate, my attitude is, you know what? We can still keep working together towards our common goal because we have two huge points of agreement. All right. Well, I think that's the note we're going to leave it on. But Christian, I got to say your passion for birding and for our feathered neighbors is absolutely um, contagious and infectious and uh, <laughs> is even making me want to spend some time. Well, not while the smoke is here, but once the smoke is gone, <laughs> some time outside. Again. You can still look out your window. Exactly. Listen, thank you so much for joining us and thank you so much for your book. And of course, uh, for this Nat Geo series, we look forward to it. Thanks for tuning in to MetroFocus. You can take our award-winning program with you wherever you go with MetroFocus, the podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. Or simply ask your smart speaker to play MetroFocus, the podcast. Also available at MetroFocus.org, WLIW.org slash radio, and on the NPR One app.